morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning, and I'm excited to be here with you. Um, I asked for an interpreter because I do speak a different language than most of you, but hopefully you'll be able to keep up with what I'm saying. Can you understand me okay? It's not too bad. Ain't too bad, y'all, is it? Hey, hey. Okay. Um, kids have a unique perspective on life, don't they? Um, our youngest, well, he's holding the youngest spot for just a couple more months. Uh, when he was just learning how to talk, he would walk around and he would say something that sounded like, Gingamote. Gingamote, and he would just say it constantly. You know, we were trying to figure out what it was, and we finally started to decipher what he was talking about. He was trying to say green remote, but we were like still confused because we don't have a green remote for the television. And so we were, and then we finally figured out his older brothers were always arguing and fighting and fussing about the remote control, and so they're always saying, "Give me the remote, give me the remote," and so that became in his mind green remote. You know. Kids always have some really interesting perspectives, and there were some people that asked some children what they thought about love, and here's a few of their responses. It's, it's pretty neat. Some of them are actually pretty spot on. First little boy said, love is like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. <laughs> fair, fair. Another little boy, I don't know if he quite was on board yet or uh, all understand, and he said, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. And then a little boy named Mike said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. <laughs> yep. And then here, a little girl, she had a pretty good insight. She said, my mother says to look for a man who is kind. That's what I'll do. I'll find somebody who's kind of tall and handsome. <laughs> She's going places in this world. And then this little boy, he completely understood more than probably most of us do. It gives me a headache to think about all that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble in my life. <laughs> a lady by the name of Monica Parker compiled a book about what God's kids' perspective was on God. And she called it, OMG, How Children See God. And it all got started with this first picture. It's kind of a scary picture. Hold on. We're going somewhere with this. But her, her son, who was about seven years old, he drew this picture. He said, I know somebody who's seen God. And so they were intrigued. And so he had been taught that God lived inside of people. And so his grandfather just had a surgery. And so he said, the doctor that cut open grandpa saw God because God lives in people. And so he said, all doctors who cut people open have seen God. And that made sense to him. And so she was really intrigued. And so she started compiling all these ideas about what kids thought about God. And here's a few of them that uh, get us started. A little girl named Abby, nine years old, said, God needs someone to take his picture so we know what he looks like. Maybe he could just take a selfie. <laughs> that, that fits. But then here's a picture right here, the next one. It's pretty interesting. He's sitting there in front of all these computer screens. This is God. He has access to this super uh, cloud technology so he can see everything that's going on all the time. And this next one is, is my favorite. I don't know if you can see it very well, but it's God. It's the God who throws lightning bolts. But why I like it, I'm kind of twisted. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Why I like it is he's got really hairy armpits. You see that? Um, that, that just really hits me right there. Or right there. Uh, anyway. And then the next one, God who appreciates good deeds. You understand that? That's, that's pretty good. He's got, if you look on the bottom left, files on people, animals, everyone. He knows what you're doing. So that's, his, that's one. Next one. All right, this one is pretty interesting. You got a Christmas tree and you got a menorah. And this kid said, I have two gods at my house and they both bring me presents. 
So he gets Christmas and he gets Hanukkah, so that's pretty neat. You know, if you look at our country, about 218 million of the 245 million adults that make up our nation believe in some sort of God. Now, a figure that kind of helps you understand that a little bit better is if you think about our nation being just made up of 100 people, that means that 89 out of 100 people have some sort of belief in God. But to get a little bit deeper, you look and you figure out that only 63 of those people are really sure about what they believe about God. Now, those are still pretty good numbers, but I want us to look this morning and see what the Bible says about God and what ultimately I think we can believe about God. A.W. Tozer was an author, and here's what he said. What comes to mind, excuse me, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's pretty powerful. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let me ask you, what do you think about God? What do you think about God as you sit here today? Better yet, better yet, the big decision from the beginning of time is really who or what are you going to trust as your God? There's some Bibles that are coming down the aisles, and if you need one, just raise your hand, and our ushers will be glad to give you one. You can keep that, or you can just borrow it, or you can look on the screen as we follow along in, the, in God's Word today. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Now, something you have to understand is that three years prior, these guys had had another meeting when God told Elijah to go in and tell him, there's not going to be rain for some time now because I want to turn my people's hearts back to me. See, King Ahab had married Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, from, from most of the time, if, you don't see many girls named Jezebel, do you? It's just, it's just got some, some weight with it, right? And so Jezebel, she was a true Jezebel. She was the one who got that idea, that connotation going on. And so she came in and he put her in charge of all national religion. And so she started introducing all these gods and goddesses, trying to draw people's hearts and minds away from the one true God. And she was pretty successful at it. She had this one particular God, especially named Baal, that she introduced and made sure that the people followed. He was a fertility God that was especially tied in with crops and with animals. And he was around rain and storms. He was in control of those to help replenish the earth. And so that's why they worshiped him. And so three years later, after that warning, they meet again, and for three years it hasn't what? It hasn't rained. And so here he comes again again in verse 17. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? See, what he's saying, the better translation of this is, you terrorist. You see, these guys weren't going on many play dates. They did not like each other very much. They had been without rain for three years, and Ahab saw it as the direct result of Elijah and what he had told him in that prophecy. Look at verse 18. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commandments of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who were supported by Jezebel. Something I want you to think about is this. Throughout history, the question has never really been, is there a God? 
that question is, is relatively new in our time frame, in our history. The question that has always been is who is the true God? Who is worthy of our trust? There always will be other gods competing against the one true God. They may be the gods of Egyptians. They may be the gods of Mesopotamia. They may be the god of money, the god of fame, the god of power, or even the god of self. These gods have always existed. The book of Acts even shows that when Paul was in the city of Athens, he went and he saw a statue they, they had erected to the unknown God. They were afraid that maybe they might have missed one of the gods, and so they just put up a, a statue to a God they didn't even know if he was there or not. People have always been trying to put up other gods before the one true God. And so because there are many, so many gods... The appeal that we hear from our culture is to be open to all of them or just be your own God. And so people will challenge you with that. It's true there are many things and ideas that set themselves up as God, but what God wants you to see, what he wants me to see today is this simple truth that while God has always had rivals, there's only room for one God. And that's what he's trying to get across. Elijah decides right now is the time to force the issue. So he issues that challenge. He calls for a, a cage match, a showdown. He says, all right, bring them on. 850 prophets of these other gods against me, the one person for the one true God. I'm ready to do it. He goes on Mount Carmel and he calls them all together. All your gods and all your spiritual leaders against me and my God once and for all. Look at verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Silence can be powerful, can't it? There was a lot said in that silence after Elijah made his challenge. The silence was there because the people did not want to choose. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to wanting to play both sides? That's what the people wanted to do. They did not want to choose. They wanted to waver. And he gave them that word. He said, choose right now. He said, don't waver. Don't dance back and forth between two opinions. Don't just favor whichever one is going to please you and make your life better at the moment and then go to the other when you need something else. You have to make a decision. I want you to know I'm an ECU fan. All right, thank you, a little bit, a little bit. People aren't super excited about it, but at least I got some people out there. But I'm an ECU fan, and a lot of us ECU fans, we get a, a hard time because a lot of ECU fans are football fans of ECU, and then they switch their allegiance a lot of times to Carolina Tar Heels for basketball. But I decided a long time ago that that just wasn't cool. I couldn't go back and forth. I couldn't waver between two opinions. If I was going to be an East Carolina fan, and I attended East Carolina fans, so I'm legit, I attended East Carolina, and I decided I was going to have to be a fan of East Carolina. But I'll be honest, in basketball season, it gets kind of tough. It gets kind of lonely. I mean, we're getting beat by community colleges and stuff. I mean, <laughs> College of Charleston, I mean, I'm sorry if there's a College of Charleston grad here. I, but still, you know, we shouldn't be, we're getting beat, easy. And then I watch all you ACC fans, and I see, you know, the rivalries you guys have, and man, I miss that, you know? I mean, watching you Duke fans, it's a trip, man. Y'all know what I'm talking about? <laughs> thank you, thank you. And, you know, all you NC State fans, wait, wait, do you guys still play college basketball at NC State? Sorry. Easy, easy. 
But, but see, I grew up a Carolina fan. That's what my family was. And my sister was an alum of Carolina. And so, I, you know, I was raised that way. But I decided, look, I can't waver between two opinions. If I'm going to support East Carolina, I need to support East Carolina. But a lot of us, when it comes to God, we want to pull for whichever side's most popular at the time. Whatever benefits us the most. And Elijah ultimately says, here's how it's going to go down. Look at verse 23. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood on their altar, but without setting fire to it. This, this is kind of strange. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. See, Elijah is giving them every advantage. He's giving these 850 prophets the advantage because I want to bring your mind back to one thing here. This God, Baal, was basically the God of what? Rain and storms. And so if they're going to have this contest decided by fire coming down from their God, what better weapon does Baal have than lightning, right? And so it's his, it's his wheelhouse, it's his strength. And so Baal, if you're God, you can show up. We'll give you your best ability to just put it out there and start this fire of this sacrifice. We're going to settle this with fire. So they build an altar of stones. Look at verse 26. When they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. You see, the scene is crazy. These people are dancing, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're doing all kinds of things, trying to draw and attract the attention of their God. And here's what happens in verse 27. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. I love this guy. He says, you'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he's a God, perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. I did not add that in there. That's in there. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. You see, lunchtime rolls around. They've been spending all morning doing all this dancing around, hollering and screaming, all this kind of stuff, and nothing happens. It's silent. Baal doesn't respond at all. Let you all know secret. He's not real. That's why. And so they're, che they're cheering, and he starts making fun of them, and he's just calling them out. He's like, you know, look. He said, where is he? Is he on his phone? You know, maybe he's catching up on The Walking Dead on Netflix. He's binging. You know, who knows what's going on? He can't hear what's going on. Maybe he's in the can. That's what he says. That's what he says. You see, like the kids say nowadays, Elijah is a savage. I mean, he's just laying it on them. I mean, he's just hammering them hard. And he's, I mean, I can see him laughing at them. And you know they're getting more frustrated. And so they get louder and louder. Look at verse 28. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, nothing, no response. So imagine this. For most of the day, they've been going at it. They've been doing all they can to attract the attention of Baal. They have to be exhausted. And when things aren't working, they just try that much harder. Can you imagine the frustration? I wonder what moment it started to set in with them. You know, I thought this God could deliver. I trusted him. I hoped this God would be powerful. I bled for this. 
They had truly bled for this God to answer them. And just maybe they were starting to think it's not worth it. I think we can understand that on some level, can't we? Have you ever bled for something? Have you ever bled for something hoping that it would pull through and it would provide for you what you were looking for? We bleed for a lot of things. We bleed for acceptance. We bleed for relationships. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's what college we're going to get into. Maybe it's just stuff. And then a lot of us, we just want to be loved, right? And we'll do whatever we can. We'll bleed for it in whatever way we can to get that person or just somebody to love us. And we're about to see one of the greatest truths right here that God wants us to get out of this story. And here it is. False gods promise what only the true God provides. False gods only promise what the true God provides. And so Elijah's had enough. After all day of them calling out to their God, he calls the people in close, and he does what in verse 30? He doesn't build an altar. He repairs the altar that had once stood on top of Mount Carmel. He goes to the place where God had been worshipped, and he gathers 12 rocks, one for each tribe of the people of Israel. These rocks are roughly three to four feet around, weighing about 100 pounds. And so he's moving these things. Elijah is the first crossfitter, right? So he's like, you know, moving these big rocks, and he's putting them up there. And he lays them up there, and he rebuilds the altar, and he stacks the wood, and he sacrifices. He cuts the bull and lays it up there. And now it's time to do all that he can to call on his God. But then he does something really, really strange. He digs a trench and puts it around. If you look here with me, you see something that's really, really crazy. He digs this trench, and then he has water poured all over the sacrifice, soaking it. Now, what has not happened in three years? No rain. So this is a rare commodity, water, but it's also a slap in the face of this rain god, Baal. And he soaks it. And I'm no, I'm no Boy Scout. But I do know one thing, if you want to set something on fire, it's probably not good to soak it in water first, right? He's trying to show that God is able to overcome any circumstance, any struggle, any trial. God can do it. So in verse 36, it says, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. It's a simple prayer, isn't it? He said, God, you do this not because of me, not because, but because of you. God, you do this to show that you are the one true God. This has all been so that people would turn their hearts back to you, God. And as soon as he says, amen, boom. I mean, fire falls down from heaven and consumes a sacrifice. It doesn't just burn up the wood. It doesn't just burn up the bull. It burns up the rocks and it, lips, it drinks up the water. And it even burns up the dirt beneath the altar. Everything is gone. God overwhelmingly shows up. What the false gods only promised, God provides. Now, what kind of response do you think that deserves? It says in verse 39, And when all the people saw it, they fell down on their face, on the ground, and cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord is God. 
So the question remains, who or what are you going to trust as your God? We worship things. We worship money, acceptance, pleasure, and people. And we imagine and we put on them the attributes of God. And we try to find the attributes of God in them. We ascribe to them attributes that are only true of God. And so you're asking these things or you're asking these people in your life to do for you what only God can do. And so you end up being just burned and hurt because they're going to let you down because they're people and their stuff. But even worse, you hurt that person that you placed that burden on. You put an unbearable burden on that person. A fourth century believer named Augustine said this. He described false gods as disordered loves. Disordered loves. Legitimate loves and pursuits that are simply out of order in our lives. Not all things are bad, it's just bad when we make them gods. And so the battle's ongoing in our lives to make sure the things that we have in our lives that we love are ordered correctly. So here's a few questions really quick this morning as we start to wrap things up. Here's a few questions that you want to answer so you can find out, are there things that I'm making a God in my life? First question is this, what has left you most disappointed? The thing that carries the greatest disappointment in your life may very well have become a God for you. Or it may be in danger of doing that. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your finances, your sexuality, your hopes, and your dreams. Whatever it is, what disappoints you? Something that we wish had gone differently or wish was going differently. And another question is this. For what do you sacrifice time and money? You know, it's a question of your calendar and your cash. You know, where do you invest most of your time and most of your money, most of your energy? Where does it go? Maybe that thing is becoming your God. Another question, what do you worry about? What keeps you up at night? What consumes your thoughts? What possession or person, if you lost them, would it mean losing meaning in your life? Maybe it's your job, your house, your spouse, your success level, your title, your comfort. And that leads us to our next question. Where do you go for comfort? What do you seek out to make you feel better when times are tough? Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's porn. Where do you go? What makes you mad? Is it losing? Is it being made to feel small? What makes you angry? Being disrespected, being left out? How about this? What do you dream of? What do you dream of? The things that consume your mind most of the time, what are you really passionate about? You see, that's where our time, our attention, our resources, and our heart are going to go. And maybe, just maybe, something's becoming your God in that area. Then one more question. Whose encouragement means the most to you? Is it your boss? You want him to say, oh man, we just couldn't do it without you. Or maybe it's your kids. Or maybe it's your spouse. Or maybe it's your dad. You just want to hear him say, I'm so proud of you. And that drives you more than even what God thinks about you. You see, these are just a few questions that can really start to help us dig down below the surface and see where our heart really is focused. For some of us, it's been appearance and it's been image. We've tanned it and we've tatted it and we've lifted and tucked it. We've hit the gym. We've counted calories. We've done all we can. We've got the clothes, the cars, and the friends. And many of us, though, we can stand up here and say that those things cannot be trusted. 
False gods only promise what the true God provides. For others, we've let money and possessions become a God. We've accumulated as much as we can. We exhausted ourselves. We've gone in debt just so we can reach a certain status, and yet we find one more time that false gods only promise what the true God provides. It could be power or success or sex or relationships. The things that we've hoped that they could provide for us have left us empty, unfulfilled, lonely, and longing for more. And some of us have learned firsthand that false gods only promise what the true God provides. For me in my time, especially back in late high school and early college, alcohol was my God. I was abusing it, I was addicted to it, it, it consumed my life, and I thought I was hiding it from all the right people, and I thought I could balance a relationship with God on some level, and my desire to party and be in the middle of everything and just allow alcohol to keep me going in my life. And finally, one night, my campus minister at East Carolina University, we actually have those, believe it or not, he pulled us aside, a few of us that were really caught up in the same thing, a few good friends, and he pulled us discreetly to the side, and he reached out, and he pulled out a brown paper bag, and for within that brown paper bag, he pulled out two things. He pulled out a beer bottle, and he pulled out a rusty spike. And he just said simply, you need to choose. You need to choose. I needed to choose because I was allowing alcohol and the party scene to become my God, and that was what was driving me. That was the only thing that was keeping me going. And I needed to choose if I wanted that or I wanted to really truly follow God because I was saying I was following God, but I wasn't really. And so I chose that night. I'm not saying it all happened just like that and I, I was a completely different person, but I started to choose Jesus that night and I started to choose God once again. And day after day, I decided I have to choose God day after day. And maybe, just maybe, today is your day to choose God. Maybe God is, is reaching out to you and he's saying, look, it's time to stop playing with all those other gods and goddesses. It's time now to follow me and trust me as the one true God. So it's time to stop looking for things and beliefs and people to fulfill you the way only God can. It's time to look at the evidence that the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. How long will you waver between two opinions? Maybe today, maybe today, you need to choose to follow God. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe you need to start really asking questions to get to know this God. Maybe it's coming back to him. Maybe you need to say, I'm all in, and you need to start figuring out what it means to be baptized. But you need to choose today to follow and honor the only God that provides on every promise that he makes. Will you pray with me? God, you are good. You are worthy. All gods and idols that we put up in front of you, they fall short. They are pitiful. They are weak and they are powerless. And worst of all, we put ourselves up as God when we don't have a clue what to do for lunch, much less with our lives. Help us to know and trust that you are able and that you are powerful. Help us to let all fear go, to know that you are able and that you are God. Help us to have the courage to step out and say, we believe that you are God because you have proven yourself to be so. Father, give us strength. Give us wisdom. 
Give us what we need to humbly submit ourselves to you, to be your people, to trust that you know the answers and that you can carry us through. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.